time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into uh, hour two of our three-hour tour. A very timely discussion this hour, to be sure, with the author of a new political thriller called Just the Truth. came out this past summer from author Jen LaGreca, who joins me by phone. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Um, now, the if I understand it correctly, the book uh, is investigating possible election tampering with a new voting yes. system. Um, boy, that couldn't be more prescient. It really is. The issue is so timely. When I did the outline for this novel years ago, I never imagined. I thought of it as a cautionary tale that election rigging and corruption in politics and in journalism could cause the uh, inappropriate election of a, of a president. And I just thought of it as a cautionary tale. It could happen here. But now we're seeing a lot of the elements of the story playing out. Or, or, so at, or at, least ac- at least accusations of it. And, yes, and yes, suspicions. Here's a question I've been dying to ask you ever since we planned to get together this morning. Um, in your research for the book, in, in putting the book together, did you find places uh, of where there were examples of election tampering and and did you find that it was that that it was relatively easy or or somewhat difficult D- do you understand what i mean yes Yes, I think that it actually was very difficult from my reading, and the thing that saves America is that we have a decentralized election system, and that was guaranteed in the Constitution to be a state power. And the fact that uh, 50 different states control their own election systems, 
I think saves us from what actually happens in my novel, where the central government, the federal government, decides that there's so much chaos on the state level of elections that the federal government is going to take control of federal elections through one electronic uh, system. And so that is where the danger really sets in. But I think there has been, although there's been cases and serious cases of election fraud uh, in our country, I, I studied uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, for example, the 1948 election uh, for Senate in, uh, in, in Texas, and that was, uh, had a lot of abnormalities in it. So there were uh, cases like that, but uh, general corruption on a massive national level I don't think is possible because we have a decentralized system, which is very good for us to keep it that way. And, and yet, uh, because of the pandemic, there have been uh, moves to maybe centralize a little bit and set some uh, some national standards and guidelines. Do you think that's maybe a yeah. move in a dangerous direction? I, I do think so, and I do think there are whispers about that. There was a congressional hearing where uh, back in January of this year, uh, the major voting machine manufacturers appeared before Congress, and they were talking about issues like this. How accurate are you? Can you be hacked by a foreign government? Uh, what are the, ch the chances of penetrating your systems? Do, you, do your systems go online? And, and questions like that were asked. And there were some whispers at the time about federal uh, involvement and more control. And, you know, we've seen the federal government get involved in many things that we didn't predict would happen. For example, medicine and education. And we tried to set uniform standards for education through the federal government, and that met with a lot of problems. So I do worry that there could be whispers about some federal control of the election process. And I think that you have to be careful what you wish for, Tom, because the cure to uh, election <laughs> chaos on a state level, the cure could be much worse than the disease. <laughs> yeah, well, we're seeing an example of that playing out in Pennsylvania right now. Pennsylvania yeah. independently made a decision, and there were some court battles about it, but, but it held up in, in some form where they were allowed to collect ballots after Election Day for two to three days um, if they were postmarked by a certain day. And that's where all this discussion comes in about centralizing and sort of standardizing is this notion that, well, maybe we should make it a federal law that that all uh, ballots have to be in by Election Day or postmarked by Election Day, some some federal standard. Um, and and uh, we're going to hear more about that because of the Pennsylvania thing, I think. Yeah, that's true. And there are good questions raised. However, the answer might just be the answer to tighten up the election procedures on the state levels because they're becoming very relaxed and very loosened now, and that presents uh, tremendous election fraud issues 
uh, potential on that on that score. So that's uh, the other side of the coin that, coin that we have to deal with. And in a way, we're trying to treat people like infants. In a way, uh, you can come and vote. You forgot your ID. That's no problem. You don't need an ID. Uh, we we can just mail out ballots to you. Massive amounts of unsolicited mail out ballots. Uh, not just someone requests a mail-in, but, but they're just mailed out, and they're mailed out to dead people. I have a deceased individual in my own household who died uh, a year and a half ago, and he's getting information about voting, you know, and he's not off the, the voter rolls. And we're in a pretty good state here in Indiana about the voting. And sudden big changes in voter laws I think are also very dangerous and invite chaos, you know, like Florida, for example, has been doing massive mail-in balloting for years, and they have the systems in place to deal with it. They were all tallied up and reported results at 10 o'clock on election night, whereas Pennsylvania is just trying to change a lot of these laws at the last minute, and that could be an invitation to chaos because systems have not been developed uh, to properly handle the procedures, do you think? Well, and we have we have six states as last reckoning that that were still um, counting ballots and and still wrestling with the process. And I think it's because a lot of states this year did things differently because of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and you know, a person uh, not wanting to go out to vote because of the COVID could have always used the absentee ballot process, you know, and that would have been reasonable. But the massive mailing out of unsolicited, was, was did COVID, COVID really justify that is a question. It, well, it is, it is a question. And, uh, again, I think, um, you know, Michigan did something like that. It wasn't uh, a massive mail-out of ballots. It was a mail-out of um applications for ballots and um and then they would review those those applications and send out ballots to people who requested them and and you know it it seemed to work fairly well i used that way this year i've i've never not voted in person before but i did vote by mail this year and um you know i found it you know to be at least from my experience, reasonably uh, simple and, and secure. And, and um, mm. you know, I, I, I don't have any real concerns about that. What gave you the idea initially to tamper with an American election in your book, Just the Truth? Uh, well, I had this idea that... I wanted to write a story about journalism because journalism is so important a profession. Journalism really is the profession that we all depend on to be the watchdogs, uh, to guard against people in power and especially in political power, gaining more and more power or doing nefarious things. Uh, journalism really is our watchdog that is a protection against all 
to all of our foundational freedoms by keeping people and political power in in check. And uh, if we lose that quality of journalism and that nobility of the profession and it becomes corrupted or it becomes partisan or it becomes uh, they want to be kingmakers and uh, and they are uh, partisan participants in in the process rather than uh, a free and independent press, you know, our, all of our foundational freedoms could be in trouble. So I, I thought that that would be a really good theme. And so I started with this story of uh, it's, it's nonpartisan. It's, uh, no political parties are mentioned in it, no real life persons. It's just about power and, and journalism and politics. And I started with this idea that uh, there's a suspicious activity surrounding a new voting system that this one newswoman is uh, believing uh, and seeing. And so she's investigating it. She's an investigative journalist, and she runs a news organization that was started by her grandfather. And uh, she has a source high up in the president's administration, he's running for re-election. He's a fictitious president named Ken Martin, and she finds that there's suspicious activity high up in his administration involving election rigging, and so she's investigating it, and she has a source within the administration, and he's about to reveal to her some important information, and he's murdered. And he's murdered on the street, and everyone's calling it a random street crime. They're calling it a random robbery that turned bad and he got killed. But she doesn't believe it. So with his death, she intensifies her investigation, and she faces the crushing retaliation of the administration against her personally and against her family's businesses uh, they're all in business, and they run the news organization, and they run a football team, and they run an entertainment network. And so, you know, and so all the things that are happening to her, there really are parallels going on in actual uh, real life. Uh, because, for example, the president, Ken Martin, has nurtured a, a very uh, receptive media where he gives them exclusive interviews and they become chief of staff for him and they get various positions and there's a real sort of an incestuous relationship between his media friends and his administration and so they start this campaign which the media his media friends pick up where they're eviscerating my journalist Laura Tanninger is her name they're eviscerating her they're eviscerating her character and they publish this uh, this article about anonymous sources smear her she's got mental health problems this and that and you know the New York Times in real life the New York Times did publish a very uh, influential uh, opinion piece, uh, and it was done with anonymous source that was supposed to be a high-level person in the administration. I remember that story. Out, it turned out to be just a low-level person who didn't really have any contact with the president. Jen, I want to I talk some more about some of the similarities between your book and what we're seeing going on now, um, but I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes, and then we'll yes. talk some more? Yes, Tom. 
Okay, my uh, guest is author Jen LaGreca. Her uh, political thriller, Just the Truth, is uh, about, of all things, election tampering to some degree. And we're going to talk about that and much, much more after we let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Sixties, the marches, the pins, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night, 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel, and who can ever forget this all-time classic... Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. 
Well, it's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something will tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. Tom Sumner, program.com. This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And hey, welcome back, everybody. My conversation this hour is with the author of a political thriller called Just the Truth that deals with election tampering, among other things. Uh, her name is Jen LaGreca, and she joins me by phone. Jen, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, thanks, Tom. Um just before the break, we were starting to talk a little bit about some of the things that happen in your book that we see playing out pretty much uh, on the evening news right now. Um, yeah. With especially, I'm I'm interested in the efforts that that our president Donald Trump has um, made is or is making to try to stop the counting. That that seems like a very strange thing. What were some of the elements in your book that people were doing to try to tamper with or interfere with the election? Well, in my book, there was an electronic uh, system, and it was a national system that would was going to be applied. It was a new system to to voting uh, for national elections, starting with the upcoming presidential election. And it turns out there's a mastermind. I don't want to give away too much, but it's a real surprise who that turns out to be at the end of the book. He's like a tech genius, and he works for a couple of very high-level people in the administration. And what they figure out is with this one electronic system, they can tamper just in very subtle ways. They know exactly where the uh, counties are in all the different states where the vote could go either way. And just the swaying of a small percentage of votes in certain key counties and key states, and they can, uh, do, uh, they can manipulate the entire election results. So that's how it happens there. You know, it's an electronic system. But when, when uh, my uh, journalist starts to investigate this, She's the power of the people in power against her is uh, phenomenal, you know, against her family businesses. For example, they run a football team and a football stadium, so a, a partisan player in uh, one agency puts a rule against the football stadium. They're in violation of an environmental rule, and they shut down the football stadium. They're in the middle of the season, you know. So that's how the deep state kind of got into my novel, when there are agencies that are uh, playing a, a role not just to enforce regulations but to destroy political enemies. That's very dangerous. So my novel exa examines that, and it examines the election fraud in terms of an electronic system. Well, so it's a little different than what's happening now, and, and the election has not taken place yet. And you also talk about the... Um relationship between people in power and the media. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, my uh, journalist has a, a friend who uh, is a journalist, but he's a different kind of journalist. He's more opportunistic, and he left his ideals back in college. He thinks she's like a, a, a adolescent in her idealistic approach to journalism, and he says those ideals belong in school, but when you're in the real world, you have to make you know, concessions. You have to be more practical, and he gets all the big interviews with the president. He becomes the uh, uh, spokesperson for the president, the press secretary. So he's on to very big things. His, his softball questionings of the president leads to a lot of promotions for him and career uh, enhancements, whereas her career is being jeopardized. She's almost in danger of being thrown out of her family business. And uh, so she's the outcast, and he's getting ahead, but he's getting ahead through through abandoning principles you know he's not asking tough questions right yes he, he asks he he gets an exclusive interview with the president and he asks you know what kind of chili do you like and what's your favorite baseball team and in the meantime the death of this person the mystery of the death of this person who was involved in his administration that never comes up so and and yet she's trying to ask the tough questions, and, and she's, in essence, being accused of fake news. Yeah, she is. She is. She's being uh, vilified. And, um, you know, a Pew survey recently showed that 63% of Americans are afraid to express their views, that there's, uh, you know, a mob on Twitter and uh, social media that, that just doesn't want to, is intolerant, and they're trying to stamp out views that are not in uh, coherence with their views, and so that's actually going on in real life. I always always like to post something kind of outrageous and then just watch (laughs) the Twitter storm. You know, I don't participate from that point on. I just watch as, as people go crazy with it. Yeah, and that's a motivation. That, like clickbait is a motivation for journalists who abandon truth, really. They just want clicks become more important than the pursuit of truth. So the more outrageous and crazy a thing they say, that's the criteria that they want to say it rather than to be truthful. You know, Jen, I, I came across something that, that struck me uh, uh, a little bit uh, hauntingly recently uh, or within the last couple of years that one of the online news services was having their reporters rather than write stories they were telling their stories in pictures oh Uh and the reason they were doing that jen is because every time you went from one picture to the next it was Mm -hmm. another click Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, they have so many sites like that. (laughs) And so, you know, so instead of clicking once and reading a story, you click on the story and then you click 35 times to see all the photographs. That's right. I've seen those sites. I've seen those sites. Uh, Yeah, so it becomes about getting clicks, whereas what is the purpose of journalism? It's not to get clicks. 
I mean, tell the truth and get clicks. You know, say something really important and get clicks. But uh, in other words, the clicks can't be the end goal. The goal has to be to investigate important issues and bring them to the public's attention, I would think. Now, what other kinds of things um, have you written, Jen? Well, I, I wrote um, uh, Noble Vision, which was my story about uh, medicine, uh, about the uh, a, a doctor and patient fighting a medical system for pursuing a new line of treatment. And that actually is coming through tr- to truth, too, because um, the new right to try laws that have just been passed the right to try experimental procedures. That's what Noble Vision was all about. I published that in uh, long before the right to try. That was from uh, 2005. And I got an endorsement from Steve Forbes and Milton Friedman that it said that my book pinpointed the dangers of uh, central control of medicine. It's a story about a doctor who wants to practice medicine through his own conscience and his own judgment, and a patient, a beautiful ballerina who's tragically injured. So there's a love story there, too. You know, it's a novel. Of course. So uh, she needs the new treatment, and the new treatment is nerve repair. She's blinded, and the doctor has a new treatment for nerve repair. Now, this would be revolutionary, you know, uh, that he would be able to cure spinal cord and brain injuries like a, a stroke or a, a blow to your head or, and you're, you're, or you're paralyzed in an auto accident. And so he believes his new procedure is safe to try on a human, but it would take 20 years to get through the bureaucracy to get approval. And so she wants the treatment, and she d- desperately needs it, the ballerina, and she can't wait 20 years. So it's their story about how he defies the law to treat her. Uh, And so it's a a fascinating medical discovery, and it's a story about the ins and outs going into bureaucracy and third parties making decisions in medicine for patients and doctors. And so uh, that's a really interesting story. Well, I'm sensing a little bit of a theme there, Jen. That uh, that that you're kind of uh, a fan of decentralization. Yeah, I really am a fan of freedom of the individual, the power of the individual, to uh, inspiring stories about struggles of individuals who have new things or new ways or are pursuing important things to them, pursuing truth, pursuing justice, and, uh, and, and so how they uh, find obstacles from the society around them and how they overcome them. Uh, you know, journalism, women in journalism, has a long and storied history going back to Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin, how a courageous ju- woman journalist uh, spoke passionately about uh, abolition of slavery and how she was vilified throughout the South. Her book was banned in the South. If she appeared in a southern state, she could be killed you know, and so she fought through that, and uh, so my journalist is kind of in that uh, vein of 
of important women journalists and in, important individuals who speak up about important things and pursue, uh, you, you know, those kind of noble values and, and their stories about how, what they encounter. So, yeah, I would say I uh, have cautionary tales about the danger of too much government in, involvement in our lives. And, and Jen, um, where do you get your ideas for stories? Because they, they, they all seem to come true later. <laughs> I, uh, Are you psychic? <laughs> you know what? I have a degree in philosophy. I have an odd background. Uh, several of the stories involve a new invention. I have a science background. I was a... Uh, chemistry major and I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry and I worked as a pharmaceutical chemist so there you get the the science and the medical discovery part of my writing and then I went to school for philosophy science was just too non-human you know I wanted to deal with human problems so I went to school for philosophy I went to Columbia and got a master's degree in philosophy but there were no jobs for philosophers so I ended up finally finding writing and novels, and so I like to express ideas in the novels, thought-provoking issues and uh, issues and ideas that we should be delving into and discussing. And so uh, my novels have that kind of depth to them, you know, a philosophical element to them. Do you so that was how I got to express my interest in philosophy and ideas. Do you work on on one project at a time, or do you have multiple things going on at any given time? I do. I work on one project, and it usually takes me several years, so I can't bat these out, unfortunately. Uh, You know, by the way, another theme in the novel is the end justifies the means. So there's an idea. That's an example of how philosophy gets into the writing. Whereas the people who are nefarious players in my novel, they rationalize their actions and they say, our end is noble. We want the election of someone who's going to do great things. It's a noble calling that we have. And so if we have to break a few spines along the way, it's justified. So the the story actually examines that, and that's a philosophical issue. You know, does the end justify the means? Well, and that's like we were talking about with uh, um, setting up uh, federal guidelines for uh, uh, election regulations. Um, yeah. You know, with the best intentions, you know, trying to... Uh, yeah. uh, sort out the chaos. Well, you know, sometimes people with very good intentions can put in place laws and they're not abusing them. Like, let's say a law that uh, we have guidelines for education and they have the very best intentions to give every child a really good education. However, someone later on could gain power that doesn't have noble intentions, but the the, the uh, ma- machinery is in place for them to pull out all the stops. You know what I mean? The machinery is there right. for them to to take those guidelines and say, well, let's let's have a, a view of America that that we want children to learn that is not going to be that's going to 
suit our agenda, let's say, and so they can use laws that are in place and abuse them. Let, like, let's say there's an environmental rule, and let's say it's somewhat reasonable, and then you, if you use it against your political enemies, then it becomes you, you've corrupted the rule. So the more rules you have in place, the more chance there could be for corruption. Maybe not of the people who actually pass those laws, but of future people. Well, now that just the truth is uh, is out, um, do you know what your next project will be? Are you working on another book yet? You know, Tom, what I'm doing, I'm getting into plays. I'm. Uh, I really? wrote the. Uh, yeah, I wrote the adaptation uh, for p- plays for my two novels. Do you know how hard it is to get a film project? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like impossible. I wrote the uh, screenplay for Noble Vision, and I had it honed by a, a professional script screenwriter, and I, uh, you know, I had it budgeted by a professional uh, producer, a line producer, and I put together a business plan, but I couldn't get any investors. It, it costs so much money, and unless you have real serious connections. It's very hard to talk to anyone. So I thought to myself, plays are a great way to dramatize important stories with important ideas. And uh, plays, every town has a community theater. And community theaters work on shoestring budgets. And they have high school theaters. And uh, you can put on plays and you can dramatize some important works in fiction through plays. And so I'm involved with that project now. And I'm having one, just the truth, actually, I wrote the play for that. And that's going to be performed in my local area of Carmel, Indiana, next spring. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, wow. That sounds uh, like it'll be a lot of fun. Well, every novelist, I think, has a dream of wanting to see your characters come alive, to see the <laughs> dramatization of your story, you know? <laughs> this is a, a strange time with the pandemic to, uh, to be launching a book. Um, have, have you had to do things a little bit differently this year with just the truth uh, with regard to signings and readings and all that sort yes, of stuff? pretty much virtual, you know, like a virtual book tour, rather than going into bookstores and signing and coming face-to-face and handling people's books with your hands and breathing on them. It's become virtual book tours. So uh, that was the uh, way that the publicists went with this. And so it got play uh, in the cyber community. Yeah, and writing articles that get posted, you know, with the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. This was an important year for a woman, a story about a woman journalist, you know? Yeah. So uh, I played on that theme and wrote an article about the storied history of women, courageous women who stand up for justice and who expose corruption and who uh, fought not only for their right to vote, but fought for the important issues of their day. And uh, so I had uh, articles like that placed, and so that helped the book. So it's been virtual, you're right, rather than face-to-face in bookstores. (laughs) Well, you know, for a lot of people, Jen, um, writing is a very solitary thing. Do you enjoy that kind of interaction with people and, and 
discussing uh, themes of the book uh, with readers? I do, I do, but only after it's done. You know, Tom, I, I have found trouble, like, joining writer groups and you let them read the oh, first chapter yeah. and that kind of thing. You really need to see your story, I do, through my own eyes first, and I need to get the first draft done. I need to get the manuscript done. Otherwise, if you show people and, in, and it's not finished in your own mind... You could be influenced because the story could take a turn that it would be what someone else would write, but not what you, what you would write. Well, that makes you know? sense. So I've always had th- this idea that I, I, I don't want to show my work unless I'm finished with the first draft. Then I'll go and I'll get some uh, beta readers, and I don't mind if people look at it then. So, uh, yeah, so writing, I think, is a solitary activity, and then after it's done, you can be more sociable and open yourself up for feedback. Do you uh, enjoy that feedback? Do do you sometimes learn things about your books that surprise you? I really do. I have enjoyed it. And, of course, you know, some people are blistering their critics, But I'll tell you, I've gotten, for example, one woman wrote a review on Amazon of Just the Truth, and she said, I'm getting this book for my granddaughter who is in college and she's majoring in journalism, and I don't want her to get cynical. I want her to to maintain uh, her integrity in journalism, and so I want to give her the story of a journalist with integrity uh, who keeps this idealistic idea that journalism is speaking truth to power. And so I, I, thought, I like that, and so I didn't think about that when I wrote it, but I thought that w- it would be a nice, inspiring story for young journalists. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's great, and I, I just I, I can't believe how timely this is, Jen, and I, I'm hoping at some point you'll write another book so I'll know what the headlines are going to be in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was that was quite something that it became so popular. Uh, but I think that we all need to, to look at journalism, and journalism, I hope, doesn't betray us, because if, if there would be people in power who would sway an election, that's not just our right to vote that would be taken away from us. Those people would be a threat to all of our freedoms, you know? That's true. So journalism really is the watchdog. You know, the Wall Street Journal had uh, an opinion article, opinion piece, just about two weeks ago, and it was titled, Media Watchdogs Are Not Supposed to Guard a particular candidate. They're not supposed to be guarding a candidate. They're supposed to be media watchdogs. And so that's what the profession of journalism is supposed to do. So I hope that uh, we keep it and we keep freedom of the press and we keep people in power in check and everything goes great. Well, Jen, we've got to end it on that note, but I always give uh, guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yeah, I sure do. JenLaGreca.com. So it's G for George. It's short for Genevieve, actually. G for George, E-N, LaGreca, L-A-G-R-E-C-A, 
dot com, and uh, they can get just the truth and learn about my other books on Amazon. They're available in Kindle eBooks. They're available as uh, paperbacks, and they're also Barnes and Noble Nook books and uh, Apple eBooks. They're available from all the booksellers. Well, Jen, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. Tom, thank you. Take Appreciate care. it. Bye. Bye. We're going to take a short break. More of the Tom Sumner program Hello, straight this ahead. Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at 4 in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as... America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. 
All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
Gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickerson. What's what's the matter? All right, all right, Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato salad? I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find the mate for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Hand me my Which one? 
It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better. <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I. Today, we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus, well, then stay six feet away. It's super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, blah, blah, blah.
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.